So exciting. This uh, series we're doing right now, if you guys are new to the room, the series we're doing is called Eschaton. I'm not going to go over everything I have. We have been recording these little episodes, the sermons, and they will be up online so you can catch up. So if you're new to the room, this is a really important series, Eschaton. And if you're wanting to know what that word means, it essentially is talking about the climax of human history. You'll hear Christians using terminology. Don't be scared of it. You hear people talking about words like soteriology and eschatology and pneumatology. And these are all just theological terms that refer to biblical concepts. Don't let it freak you out. Don't turn off because you don't understand the terminology. Eschatology essentially is the study of last things. We've talked often about the fact that Christians um, have a fetish about end times. We do. If you go to any Christian bookstore, they have a prophecy section. You're going to see prophecy books come and go. If you were in the 80s, you would have read the book 100 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1988 or or 88 Reasons Jesus is Returning in 1988. This is just, it's a fetish we've had as as a people have gone throughout the centuries, in particular the last, say, 200 years. And I would say highlighted especially in the last 50 years or so since the the, the 1948, the, come, the regathering of, of the people of, of Israel to Jerusalem, that was, uh, a lot of people speculate, is a really important uh, area in eschatology. And so, listen, that study of end times is something that Christians love to talk about. And I want to say there's an unhealthy element of that, and there's a very biblical healthy element. I hope that we're staying on course with the very healthy element to say we want to talk about end times stuff, last days things, kingdom of God stuff, in a biblical and healthy way, not in an off-balance kind of way. But it, it can be unhealthy and that it affects how you view the world. So listen, here's the deal. This is what's so exciting. Eschaton, the very fact that we're talking about a climax of human history is something that should inspire you. It should inspire you. Last night, we're at this concert, and before the concert actually began, they're playing these images up on the screen of different ministries you can get involved with. And it was kind of, it was really interesting to see in the light of everything we're talking about. I'll give you an example. Um, they were talking about you can adopt kids in third world countries to sort of like feed them. We, we do that as a church. When you guys give, we actually participate in that as well. Feeding uh, kids in, in countries where they can't get running water and food and things like that. So here you have Christians gathering and we're talking about, hey, I'll, I'll adopt that kid. I'll, I'll put money in, in to making sure that kid has food and a place to go. And so that was exciting. And then he played another clip. Some of you guys will remember about human trafficking as one of the greatest growing criminal enterprises in the world today, human slavery. We think slavery is over. It's not over. It's actually on the rise. Uh, Human trafficking, millions are affected by it. They're kidnapping children and women and selling them into sex slavery. Some women being forced um, to to service, you know, 40 people a day in this kind of human trafficking. And you, you look at things like that in the world and you say, Man, that's, that's awful. It's horrific. And I want to say, by the way, the Christian worldview is the only worldview that gives, you, gives us a basis to call that horrific. If there is no God, it's not horrific. What protoplasm does to other protoplasm is irrelevant. So the fact that it burdens us as people to hear about human trafficking shows your image bearers of God. Amen? But we have to ask the deeper question. We look at issues like human trafficking and hungry people and people who are hurting and we want to rescue people. Colby was just up here talking to us about feeding homeless people. We're talking right now, uh, Candy and I are in the process of, uh, of, of foster care and adoption. As a church, we're behind that. We want to empty out the foster care system, the, the orphanages in Arizona. I hope that as Apologia grows 50 years from now, we look back and we say there are no more orphans in, Amer- in Arizona because they can't stay there because Christians are scooping them up and taking them out. When we look at the world and the issues that are going on, this issue matters. Eschaton counts. You look at the wars that are going on in the world today, Afghanistan, Iraq, and 
and, and every other place that it's happening in the world, you want to ask the question, does what we do even count? And your view of eschaton matters because as a Christian, you believe that history is going somewhere. Now that has to excite you. That God has a plan for history. History is not uh, in a pagan way, cyclical and based on seasons and kind of weird foo-foo, woo-woo, spiritual kind of stuff. Uh, history is not uh, atomistic. It's not, uh, in, in a sense, uh, like the atheist would see it, sort of just chaos, just stuff moving around. At one point, there was fish, and then those fish became apes, and those apes became you. Congratulations. Just stuff moving around. We're just matter in motion. No guidance, no purpose, no governance of the universe. You see, the fact that we're talking about a climax of history... You need to be excited about that. History is going somewhere. It's not just going somewhere all on its own, and it's in the hands of a sovereign God. There's not a maverick molecule anywhere in this universe. God's in control of every single detail. He's not just trying to figure things out. He's the one that's determined what does and doesn't happen in his universe. When we say that Jesus is king over the universe, that really means something as a Christian. We're talking about the fact that this is the God who declares the end from the beginning. We're talking about this God, Jesus, on the throne, and he is the one who orchestrates history. The fact that history is going somewhere has to matter for you. If you're an adult in this room, that's got to count for your life. If you're a child in this room, kids who are in this room, who have your parents brought you here, they're pointing you to this Messiah, this message matters for you because you have to ask the question, what is the, where's the world going? Is God going to be victorious in the lives of his people? You see that? You've got to answer that. Let me just, let me say Askaton matters too, because when we talk about sex slavery and human traffic, and we're talking about hungry kids, and we talk about a world that's, you know, that, that has sin and there's corruption and there's all this different stuff going on, I have a question to ask us. If, if Jesus is going to return to a defeated church, if ultimately Christians are going to get beat up in history, if ultimately the, the, the unbelievers and the ungodly are going to sort of take over and Jesus is going to come back to rescue a defeated church, then, then is what I invest into all of this stuff, is it meaningful? Does it ultimately really matter? Is it going to change anything? Will, will human trafficking be abolished one day and actually stopped? Will we put an end to hunger in the world? Will we see any kind of significant change as a result, fruit from the, the proclamation of the good news? As the hearts of people in the world are transformed and changed through a relationship with the living God, will that actually do anything in the world? Will people be able to look back after all of this is done and say, hey, look what the Lord hath wrought. Look what God has done. Look how Jesus didn't just conquer sin on that cross, but how he's actually transformed the whole world. Or will people ultimately, just before Jesus returns, be saying, man, this world is in shambles. And you know, it doesn't look like Jesus did very much. Does it matter? It matters a great deal. Jesus is sending us out on mission. He says before he ascends, did he not? Didn't he say in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, didn't he say to us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me? Did he say that? Did he mean it is the question we have to ask ourselves? Because it sounds to me like he thought that he did. Because he not only said it, that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him, but he also told us to go, therefore... Therefore, what? Because all authority has been given to him. To go, therefore, and make what of all nations? Disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to what? Obey everything that I've commanded to you. You know, Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer. We're going to end on this in a sense of what's important. Guys, 
What is the Lord's Prayer? You know, we, people pray it all the time. You know, I was jokingly saying before, a lot of us have come out of a background of drug and alcohol addiction. Some of us have. Um, and we think about the fact that even like an AA meeting, you have people that don't even believe in Jesus and they stand up in a circle, they hold hands and they say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it always makes me giggle. It does. It just makes me giggle when I see a room of people who haven't turned to Christ as Lord praying the prayer that he prayed for his kingdom to have full reign and power over the world and that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, you think about the fact that we've prayed that prayer and be honest, be honest, tell the truth. We've prayed that prayer as Christians in exactly the way Jesus told us not to pray it, right? He says, pray this prayer and don't pray like the Gentiles do thinking that God's going to hear them because of their repetitious phrases and da-da-da-da-da. And, and, you know, and Christians always have answers as to, well, I know who does that, right? But the thing is, the thing is, is Jesus says this prayer for us to pray. You pray like this, that God's name would be holy throughout the world and that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I want to ask the question, do we, have we really thought about the implications of that? Have we thought about the implications that we're asking God, his name to be holied? throughout the world, the people in Africa and China and Canada and, and South America and uh, all these different places would actually holy God's name. And that we look at stuff in the world that's collapsing, we say, hey, the gospel is the answer for that. And that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It really matters. And it just boggles my mind to see people praying that prayer and not even really thinking about the implications of it. It's powerful. Eschaton matters. Your view of end times counts. Christians, simple. We all agree. Listen, guys, don't, don't let this freak you out. Christians, we all agree on all the essentials. Last night, there were thousands of people in that room, stadium, whatever, thousands of people worshiping. And there were, there were differences between us, of course. There's Christians, we have different views on end times, different views on worship. A lot of people didn't come, go last night to the Hillsong concert because they think you should only use bells in worship. Yeah, that's weird, Okay. But the point is, is that they're, they're in, they're in-house disagreements and, and debates. Should you, should you bring, uh, should you sit in on pews in service or should you use chairs? Should you have a certain color carpet? These kinds of things are insignificant details ultimately. They're non-essential in-house debates. But listen, we agree, every Christian agrees in all of the major details of Christ and that who he is, what he accomplished. And listen, listen closely. We all agree that Jesus is going to return for a final resurrection. He's going to raise the just and the unjust. Everyone, what does that mean? The saved and the unsaved are going to be raised. And you are going to go on forever in one of two places. Eternity with God, and to enjoy God for all eternity in His presence because of what He's accomplished. Or, if you're not in Christ, you're going to spend eternity in spiritual separation from God, eternal death. Jesus referred to it as a lake of fire, the, the place that, that unbelievers go to. That's where we're going. Jesus is going to be victorious at the end of history anyways. But ready? I want you to picture this. Jesus is coming back. He is going to bring a final resurrection. But here we are, and there's that moment. The question is, in this moment where, where we are now, what's going to happen in history? Is he going to be victorious or is he going to fail in his mission? That's what we got to ask. And so let's, let's go right into it. This is so thrilling. You have got to be tripped out by this. I'm telling you right now. 
Last week on Apologia Radio, we did, we're starting part, as part of the radio program. Go to ApologiaRadio.com and you'll catch the last one we did. We're starting to sort of like add into each episode this, how do we know that Jesus is the Messiah? And we're doing some stuff that goes beyond this, like the fact that the Old Testament tells you every detail necessary to know Jesus. Kids in the room, this has got to excite you. Even big kids, okay? Listen, Jesus isn't just like a pipe dream. The Old Testament told you everything about him. Everything. The who, the what, the when, the where, the how, the why. Everything about Jesus is in your Old Testament. When you put your faith in Jesus, you're not putting your faith into nothingness and jumping off a cliff into nothing. You're standing on rock, solid ground. Every detail necessary to know Jesus is in the Old Testament, and it is awesome. Everything about Jesus from his person, where he's born, what he's going to accomplish, why he's coming, is all in vivid detail in your Old Testament long before he comes. But I want to get you excited about three things tonight. Are you ready? I'm, I, we're going to have a, a little shorter message tonight because I want to make sure we are accommodating the children that are in here. I really want to do that because we love the, we love our children being with us. We want our kids to learn and grow with us. And so with that, I am going to lower the, the time of the, of the message. So pray for me right now, okay? Uh, three things. And Pastor Luke, you turn the air down. It kicked off again, I think. Okay, so number th- three things. I want you to write these down, okay? Three points tonight you need to know that should get you thrilled. Three things we're going to talk about in reference to eschaton. Three things. Number one, and make space near each one to write down next to it, okay? I'm going to give you lots of scripture tonight. Number one, the timing of the events. The timing of the events. So first point, you can write this down, the timing of the events. Number two, the atmosphere promised. You could put it another way, ready? That God promised that there was going to be sort of circumstances surrounding the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom. So if you're in the room tonight and you're new to Christ, the Bible, I'll make it simple for you. Are you ready? Just those two points. Listen closely. The Bible doesn't just tell you there's going to be a kingdom. It doesn't just tell you that there's this Messiah who's coming. Listen, and this has got to get us excited as the people of God. The Bible tells you when. Do you get that? when it's going to happen. Not in a Nostradamus type sense, right? Where you can squeeze anything you want into the prophecy and you can you know, malleable, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. But I'm talking straight up timing where God puts a book in at the end of the prophecy where nothing else after that can actually be, it can validate that that person is the Messiah. The timing of the Messiah and the kingdom is in your Bibles and it is awesome. The second thing is that there were certain elements promised around the timing of the Messiah and the kingdom that had to be in play for it all to take place. The third thing is, are you ready? The nature or uh, the effect of the Messiah and his kingdom. That the Bible tells you what the nature of and the effect is going to be of the Messiah and his kingdom. So three things, are you ready? Tonight's all we're doing. Three things. One, the timing of the events, the Messiah and the kingdom. Two, the atmosphere that was promised. This is all Old Testament stuff. And three, the nature or effect of the Messiah and his kingdom. First thing, go to your Bibles, sword drill, Daniel 2. Go. Daniel 2. If you use your phone app, you are cheating. Daniel 2. I win. Daniel 2. 
Okay, now for those of you guys that are new to the Bible, I'm going to give you a little background. This is important that you know, because we're opening the Bible and you might say, Jeff, I never even read Daniel. I got a friend named Daniel, but who's this dude, right? (laughs) Daniel is written during the time of the Babylonian captivity. You can read about this in history. There's a king named Nebuchadnezzar. He was big time, big time in Babylon. You can read about it in the Babylonian Chronicles outside of the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar's a real king in history, and he was taking over. We even have evidence in antiquity of the, of the king of Egypt before um, the court of Nebuchadnezzar, which meant even the king of Egypt was subjugated by Nebuchadnezzar. I'm talking big time. Nebuchadnezzar was king. He took, as promised, the Jews into captivity. God said it was going to happen, and it did. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city and the sanctuary, done. And now the Jews are there, all right? So this is written about 600 years before the time of Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar has a, almost like a dream that looks like an acid trip. I mean, it's weird. The statue, you know, there's four parts to it, this little stone that crushes its feet and And you're like, what is this? So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He calls all the wise men from Babylon in. He's like, hey, guys, I've got a dream. This this is Jeff Durbin paraphrase, by the way. This is not exactly how it goes in the text, okay? He's like, I have a dream. And they're like, all right, well, tell us what the dream is, and we'll tell you what the interpretation is. Tell me the dream. Interpretation. That's how it works. Nebuchadnezzar's like, "Uh, uh, 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 uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. You tell me what my dream was. And then tell me the interpretation. Otherwise, you die. And they're like, come on now. Ain't nobody got time for that. That's the same. This, <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, they're like, this, nobody plays like this. No, there's no one in the world that's ever done something like that, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's like, if you don't do it, you die. All right? That's how it's going to work. You're going to tell me what the dream was in the interpretation, then I'll know you really know. So they're like, we can't. So Nebuchadnezzar sends a decree out that all these wise men are going to be killed. Daniel finds out. Daniel's like, what's up with the king? Why does he want everyone dead? And they tell him because, you know, he has this dream. No one can interpret it. So he says, you go tell the king that I'll give the interpretation. And so he goes, Daniel goes before the king and through divine inspiration and the blessing of God, he's able to tell Nebuchadnezzar what he actually dreamed and what it means. And I'm going to read it to you. Here we go. In Daniel chapter two, verses 31 through 44, I'm not going to do the whole text, but I want you just to see a portion 31 through 44. Listen closely. My king, Daniel's telling him now, as you were watching, a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron, and fired clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, I cannot go into every detail tonight, maybe later, but right now get the picture. He's being told that this little stone is going to strike the statue and it's going to become a great mountain that fills the earth. You have to catch that. You might want to say, give me more, Jeff. What, what exactly does that mean? Well, here you go. 
Daniel's going to explain it in verse 44. If you read from 39 onwards, you'll see that it represents four kingdoms coming. Four. One, two, three, four. The four kingdoms, guys, in history, ready? Babylon, that's the kingdom they're in. Medo-Persian, Greek, Alexander the Great, right? Romans, four kingdoms. In history, you can line them up. There were four major kingdoms, and this is the promise, that during the time of the fourth kingdom, God's going to set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Here's the answer. Verse 44, in the days of those kings, fourth kingdom, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And the kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. Listen closely. If you guys are following, this is awesome. Four, one, two, three, four kingdoms in the dream. A stone appears, crushes that statue, and that little stone that comes against this massive statue representing these four kingdoms in the time of the fourth kingdom, destroys it, it becomes a what? Mountain that fills what? The whole earth. And what is the promise about that kingdom that comes from a little rock? A little rock. Is that it itself will endure forever, it will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. And isn't it making sense now? When Jesus comes, and they're like, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Matthew 16, uh, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say this guy, some say this guy. Well, who do you say that I am? And they say, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He says, blessed are you, Peter, 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 <laughs> Peter. Blessed are you, Peter. He says, because flesh and blood did not reveal us to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And what does he say, though? He says this. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Isn't it interesting that the Messiah, he said, I'm the Messiah. Isn't it interesting the Messiah says the same thing Daniel said? that he would build something that would never be destroyed. It itself would endure forever. Jesus says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then it amazing that Jesus speaking in the same line as what all the prophets said. So listen closely. The first issue of timing, guys, how many kingdoms are in the vision? Tell me. Four. What's the last kingdom? Rome. When did Jesus come? Did Jesus bring his kingdom? Let's talk about it. Go to Mark chapter one. That's probably one of the easiest places. This is everywhere, but at least I want you to have maybe a reference to put next to it in Daniel. Mark chapter one, Mark chapter one, go ahead and head over there. Mark chapter one, verse 14. Look at what G, look how Mark opens up his gospel. He opens up the gospel. Just a quick side note. You're, this is, you're going to catch this in a minute. Listen closely. Mark opens up with the fact that God said that someone's going to come before the Messiah comes. And that was John the Baptist. And he's calling people to repentance. Now enter Jesus after the temptation. I want you to see it with your own eyes. Sorry, it's verse 15. The time is fulfilled. Underline, 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 star, circle, dot, 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 big arrows pointing down. 
The time is fulfilled. Question, guys, what time? The promised time of the Messiah and his kingdom. Not just some unspecified time. The fact that God told us when he's coming. The time is fulfilled. And what does Jesus say? And the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. So here comes Jesus, the Messiah, and he says the time's fulfilled. Time's fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And you say, well, like, what does it mean at hand? It means at the, at the tip of the fingers, right there. The kingdom of God is there. And so, guys, I want you to think about how purely awesome the Christian worldview is. God says, this is all going to happen in history exactly like this. And if you want to know when, I'll tell you when. Four kingdoms, then he comes. And isn't it cool that Jesus comes in as this, <laughs> this guy from Nazareth? I mean, remember the fact that Jesus comes in and they're like, hey, we found the Messiah. And they're like, can anything good come from Nazareth? Here comes this guy from Nazareth, son of a carpenter, which means he was probably a carpenter himself, right? He's lowly, just like everybody else. Almost, you can completely miss him. And it really ticked the Pharisees off, by the way. Here comes Jesus saying he's Messiah. And they're like, where? Where's your kingdom? Notice that they attach the Messiah with what? The kingdom. Where's your kingdom? If you're the Messiah, where's that? This Messiah, this, this kingdom's going to fill the whole world. And how did they think that was going to happen? Military might. They missed it. It wasn't about that. Here comes Jesus, little stone, this little nothing, first century Jewish Palestinian carpenter. Little stone. To last night, I was in Glendale or wherever that is in the stadium with thousands of people, all these thousands of people from different nations, cultures, tribes, languages coming together to worship this Messiah in Phoenix, Arizona, from the other side of the world. And we want to ask the question, do you get little stone to mountain? Are you seeing it happen now? So the timing is interesting. It's very important. Now, I want you to see now Daniel 9. Go to Daniel 9. And by the way, we're going to do a big one on this. We have to because it's so big. But I'm going to give you the elements. So quick thing. When I said timing, this is where I want you guys to make sure you guys are learning and growing as believers. Coming to church should not be a guy telling you how things are. And you're going, my pastor really knows his Bible. Yay for Pastor Jeff. Rockstar pastors are awesome. He's the go-to guy for all the information. You're supposed to be a disciple, amen? You're supposed to make disciples. Your pastor is supposed to shepherd and love you and care for you, teach you, disciple you, so that you can go and love and care for and disciple others. It's not about me knowing the Word of God. It's about you as God's people knowing Him and His Word, amen? So ready? The timing of the kingdom. There were going to be how many kingdoms, guys? Four. What's the fourth one? Rome. When did Jesus come? Then. Little stone to what, guys? Mountain. There's the timing. Now, Daniel 9. And I love this. You need to keep this in your pocket. And you need to have it there for good. Kids in the room, children, if you want to know the rock solid ground you stand on in your faith, this is one of those verses that you got to put in your heart, treasure up for good. Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to tell you what it says, the timing. I can't give you every detail in the prophecy now, but I'll give you the necessary elements. Daniel chapter 9. Listen to what he says. Verse 24. The angel Gabriel 
extremely reliable source of information. Andrew Gabriel is talking to Daniel. He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end. That's to, make, to put a stop to sin, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Wow. To make an end of sin? To bring reconciliation for iniquity and to bring an everlasting righteousness? That about sums up all of our problems. End of sin, reconciliation with God, and everlasting righteousness. This is a massive prophecy. Massive. This is written hundreds of years before Jesus came. And listen to what it says. In verse 25, no one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Pause. Not going to do it tonight, but guess what this means? We can mark our calendars in history to start counting down the days till the Messiah. Did you hear what I just said? God is telling you, when this decree happens, start counting down. It's going to land on the Messiah. There is nothing in the world like that. Do you understand that? There's not a thing in the world that comes close to that. Nothing. Look, just one example. By way of one example, in the last 200 years, Joseph Smith Jr. of of Mormonism, he prophesied numerous times the coming of Jesus Christ in his generation. He said that he was going to remain in the priest's office until Jesus came. Er, Gone. He said that Jesus was going to return within 56 years of a certain time period in the 30s. Did he come back? Nope. False prophet. They try and they try and they try. The Jehovah's Witnesses in New York City, in New York, they say the same thing. They say Jesus is going to return and they fail over and over and over. They give even times and they fail over and over and over. The Bible gives you specifics. God says, start counting here and it's going to land on Messiah. And it does. Listen closely. It says this, no one understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, there's your date to mark your calendar, it says, until Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, it will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. After those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. Mark your Bible. Mark your Bible. Messiah will be cut off. The word there, cut off, is the same word used to describe animal sacrifices. Do you hear that? The word there for cut off is the same word used to describe animal sacrifices. So what's the prophecy so far? Follow me. Come back. Here we go. End of sin. Reconciliation with God. Everlasting righteousness. What's going to happen? God says, start counting down. After this certain period of time, the Messiah is going to be cut off and have nothing. Now follow this. It says, the people of the coming prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now get this, follow the timeline. Ready, everyone? I'll I'll give you a little timeline up front right now. Here's the prophecy, end of sin, reconciliation for iniquity, everlasting righteousness. What's going to happen? God says, start counting down the days, and the Messiah is going to be cut off and have nothing. Then, the second Jewish temple is going to be destroyed. How do we know it's the second Jewish temple? Well, isn't it obvious? Because Daniel's writing this book at a time where the first temple is now gone. Who took it down? Nebuchadnezzar. Thank you very much. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. Daniel's writing at a time where there isn't a temple. No temple, no city. They're in Babylon. They're in bondage. All that God promised them. And what is he getting now? The Messiah is coming. 
He's going to make an end of sin. He's going to bring reconciliation with God. He's going to bring an everlasting righteousness. He's going to come. He's going to be cut off. Same word used to describe the animal sacrifices. And then the people of the princes to come is going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. What city and the sanctuary? The second one. Did you just get that? What's that mean? As history moves from Daniel on, you're looking for this Messiah to come and die and then the next temple to be destroyed after he dies. What happened in history? Daniel came, wrote this down. Jesus came. He died. And what was he? The sacrificial lamb. He was cut off. And then what happened? As prophesied, Jesus says that some of them in his time period weren't going to die before that Jewish temple was destroyed. And guess what? In 70 AD, the Roman armies of Titus destroyed that city in the sanctuary and there wasn't left a stone upon another. You know what that means? Daniel's telling you right here that when that temple is destroyed, nobody else could even claim to be Messiah because the Messiah had to come and die before it was destroyed. Question to God's people, where's the temple? It's gone. If somebody came today and said, I'm Messiah, I'm Messiah. Telling tales out of the schoolyard. No more Messiahs, my friend. Can't happen. Temple's gone. In order to be the Messiah, you had to come and die before that temple was destroyed. It's over. It's done. Now, question I have to ask you as God's people. When Jesus died and was cut off, was he the Lamb of God? Did he make an end of sin? Yes or no? On that cross. What does he say? It is what? Finished. Did God reconcile you to himself because of Christ? Do you have righteousness now because of the work of Christ? Did Jesus come before the temple was destroyed? Yes. Is he Messiah? Yes. Is there any other way? No. Real briefly, I won't tell you the whole story. I go to Scottsdale to meet with a guy who's a rabbi dressed up, looks like Madashahu. He was banging, just straight up Pharisee, Madashahu. Oh, yo, yo, yo. He was, no, he was big thing. Some of the old crowd have no idea what we're talking about right now, but you, those of you that do, only the elect understand that one. Um, so I go to Scottsdale because this guy says he's holding a seminar on how we know that Yeshua is not Mashiach. He speaks for about two hours when he's done. I go up to him and I basically said, you know, thank you for having us. I really appreciate having this conversation with you. I'm very thankful. He says, well, great. I said, I have one question. How come you didn't bring up any of the verses that Jews who believe in Jesus and Christians who are Gentiles that believe in Jesus have been using for 2,000 years to show that Jesus is the Messiah? How come you didn't bring up those verses? He says, I brought up every single one of them, young man. I said, you didn't bring up even one that I would use. He says, okay, give me an example. I said, oh, <laughs> where do I start? <laughs> um, I said, well, Daniel 9. He says, well, what do you mean? I said, well, Daniel 9 says the Messiah is going to make an end of sin, bring reconciliation for iniquity. He's going to bring an everlasting righteousness. He's going to die, and then the second temple is destroyed. So ready? End of sin. He dies. Second temple is destroyed. I said, well, Rabbi, where's the second temple? He said, well, everyone knows it was destroyed in 70 AD. So right. Rabbi, if, just, if Yeshua is not the Messiah... Who is? It's gone. And he goes. (laughs) 
Uh, tell you what, uh, give me your email address and I'll get back to you on this. Never did. Because there is no other way. This is God's fingerprints all over this. The timing of the Messiah is spelled out with specificity in the Bible. When the kingdom's going to come, after, during the time of the fourth kingdom, the fact that he was going to accomplish redemption before that temple was destroyed is all in your Old Testament, and it is awesome. Now, the atmosphere promise. I told you the second point would be the atmosphere. Here's what I'm saying. Listen, man, guys, this is really amazing. Um, one of the reasons why I despise secular education is not because they can't get facts right. It's because a secularist, a person who's not a believer, as they're, as they're looking at history, they don't interpret history with providence. They don't interpret history with worldview. What's, what's going on in the person's minds? What do they believe? What is God doing in history? It's so what I'm telling you. I just told you this. God's going to do something in history. It's going to happen at a particular time. But watch this. He doesn't just tell you this is going to happen. He tells you why. And he tells you what's up. He tells you what's going to happen around it. Now, here we go. I want you to go to your Bible to Malachi. That is the last book of your Old Testament. So if you want to make it easy, if you know where Matthew is, get to Matthew and go backwards. Malachi. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And this is really cool. I want you to mark this down as something that God describes as going to be the atmosphere around the timing. Now get this. Here comes the Messiah. He's coming. But there's something going on around it. I want to tell you about the promised Elijah. I want to tell you about the promised Elijah. And if listen, if you're like, I don't, I don't know who Elijah is, Pastor Jeff. It's okay. He's an Old Testament prophet. Here's what you need to know. He was famous for calling people to repentance. His role was to call people to repentance. That was his highlight. So he's gone now. All right? He's with the Lord. He's gone. And now Malachi tells you, here's what's coming. Here's what he says. For indeed, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. Um, does it sound like something's going to go down? Yes. Sounds like judgment, doesn't it? Again, guys, listen, this is the last book of the Old Testament. Before the intertestamental period of 400 years, before there was silence, God says, the day is coming, burning like an oven. It's judgment language. And watch what happens. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of hosts, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked, for there will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Now listen, here we go, here we go. For all you kids in here, they're like, what's this dude eating bugs, wearing camel fur and all that jazz? Who is that dude? John the Baptist. That's what this is about right here. Long before Jesus comes, listen to what it says. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Look, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Wow. Wow. There's a period of silence between when the Old Testament was written, guys, and the New Testament was and Jesus comes, right? And what, what are you waiting for as a Jew? What are you waiting for? There is a day coming where judgment is coming. 
But before that happens, God's going to send this Elijah character to turn people from sin to God. Now, ready? Go to your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 3. Now, think about it. You've been waiting. You're a little Jewish boy, little Jewish girl, kids in the room right now. You went, to, you went to synagogue with your families. You learned the word of God together. And you're hearing all the time, your parents are like, guys, this guy's coming, Elijah. He's going to turn the hearts of the people to God before the Messiah comes. This Elijah is coming. And you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting. And all of a sudden, appearing in the wilderness in the first century is a guy named John. And here's what he says. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Isn't it interesting that all this stuff about Messiah is all wrapped up in kingdom? We have forgotten that as Christians, and that's part of the problem with our culture. We thought Jesus was just about heaven one day. No, Jesus was about reconciling people to God and having a kingdom that was going to fill the whole world. It wasn't just a dichotomy between then and now. It was both wrapped up into one. And John knew that this Messiah is coming, and that meant the kingdom of God was near. And here's what he says, For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Now guys, kids, parents, everyone in the room, believers, picture a guy that is just straight up weird. He's out in the desert, he's crying out saying, Repent, the kingdom of God is near! He's eating locusts and honey, Think of Luke. <laughs> Big old beard. Wrap him up in some leather. Give him some locusts. John the Baptist. Right? That's my vision of John the Baptist. Just so you know what's going on in my little mind, when I think of John the Baptist, I picture Luke with a staff, little leather thing, and popping some locusts in the desert. Okay? John himself had a camel hair garment. See? There you go. With a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. The people from Jerusalem, all Judea and all the vicinity of the Jordan were flocking to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River and they confessed their sins. Listen to what John is telling them. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the place of his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Ding, 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 ding. This should start ringing bells now. In the Old Testament, what did God associate Elijah's coming with? repentance and judgment. And isn't it interesting, along comes this guy named John the Baptist calling people to repentance in the spirit and power of Elijah. And what is he warning them about? The wrath about to come. You seeing it happening? You seeing it happening? Who did, Jesus, who did John the Baptist precede? The Messiah, which is precisely what God said was going to happen. Repentance calling Elijah... And then here comes Messiah with his kingdom. And watch what he says. Who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. You know what I saw last night at that concert? I saw a bunch of little stones who are Abraham's children. Did you hear that? These Jews in the first century are like, we've got Abraham as our daddy. He's like, don't say that. God can raise up from these rocks, heirs of Abraham. You repent. 
And so what he says to them is this. Even now, the axe is ready to strike the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. Guys, think of an axe. We don't use a lot of axes today, and you definitely don't want to give me one because I would be dangerous, okay? But we have, think of an axe, however you hold it, okay? Um, Look, I don't have to know how to cut down a tree to know what's happening here, okay? So calm down, okay? Um, But if you have an axe and you swing it, and the teeth of that axe are at the root of the trees, it's already in mid-swing, It's about to cut it down. This isn't saying, maybe judgment's coming. We'll take one more swing. He's saying, the axe is already in swing, and the teeth of that axe are already touching the edge of the roots. So repent. Because what? Malachi says, associated with the coming of Elijah and the Messiah, was that judgment was about to come. Do you get this? It's starting to come together now. You need to sense that the atmosphere here is that God promised Elijah would come, call him to repentance, and then that was a time of judgment that was coming. And you might be asking this question, and you should. Jeff, John the Baptist isn't Elijah, right? Well, let me give you the divinely inspired interpretation. Go to Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verse 7. Are you ready? Here we go. As these men went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. He's talking about John the Baptist now, his cousin. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Jesus says. A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? Look, those who wear soft clothes are in king's palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and far more than a prophet, this is the one it is written about. Look, he quotes the Old Testament. I'm sending you my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. I assure you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. If you are willing to accept it, for he is Elijah who is to come. Anyone who has ears should listen. Are you ready? Jesus said John the Baptist was the promised Elijah. You say, how is that? Because Elijah was the prophet of repentance. And he was coming in the same line and power of Elijah. Now, here we go. Quickly, I told you guys we'd be done by seven. And I meant it. I meant it. All right. And so I'm going to do my best here to give you the rest of this. Ready? The outpouring of God's spirit was another thing associated with the atmosphere promised. Are you ready? Go to your Bibles now to Acts chapter 2. That's to the right now. I've already told you guys the timing. And now I'm going to tell you what you're supposed to smell in the air. You get that? There's something you're supposed to sense about the timing of this Messiah and his kingdom. In Acts chapter 2, verse 14, Peter summarizes an Old Testament prophecy. And here's what I want you to get. I'm going to read you this because it's easier than going back and forth. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. The Holy Spirit of God is poured out on the church. The Spirit of God is now residing within God's people. And there's some straight up trippy stuff happening. 
All these people from these other nations are coming, and the apostles and the people there are speaking the gospel to them in their own language. Do you get that? In their own language. Communicating to them in this miraculous moment the gospel in their own languages. And it was really tripping people up. And what Peter does is he says in verse 14, but Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, men of Judah and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only a nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what is spoken through the prophet Joel. He quotes Joel. And here's what Joel says. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see dreams and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and remarkable day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. What's the atmosphere? That the coming of the kingdom and the Messiah would be at a time where the spirit of God was poured out. Elijah, a.k.a. John the Baptist, was going to come prepare the way for the Messiah. But it would be in the midst of a time where there was judgment coming, judgment coming, judgment was coming. Judgment was coming. It's about to happen. The axe is laid at the root of the trees. Repent. And quickly, I want you to get the final picture for today. Isaiah 65. Go back to your left. I'm giving you more of what you're supposed to sense around the timing of the Messiah of the kingdom. Isaiah 65. I am not doing all this right now. But I want you to see a couple things. Look what God is saying in Isaiah 65. I was sought by those who did not ask. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Listen to that. I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the wrong path following their own thoughts. These people continually provoke me to my face, sacrificing in gardens, burning incense on bricks, sitting among the graves, spending nights in secret places, eating the meat of pigs, putting polluted broth in their bowls. They say, keep to yourself. Don't come near me for I'm too holy for you. These practices are smoke in my nostrils. God is speaking here. Listen, listen. He's speaking about his anger towards the covenant breakers. And what he's saying here is this, is that he's going to be sought by those who didn't even ask for him. And listen, he says, verse six, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will repay them fully for their, your iniquities and your, for your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, because they burn incense on the mountains and reproach me on the hills. I will reward them fully for their former deeds. Are you ready? Just a little burst here today. We're going to do a full look at this later. Isaiah 65, verse 9. I will produce descendants from Jacob and heirs to my mountains from Judah. My chosen ones will possess it and my servants will dwell there. Verse 11. But you who abandon the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword. 
and all of you will kneel down to be slaughtered because I called and you did not answer. I spoke and you did not hear. You did what was evil in my sight and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. This is where you all need to listen because guess what? He's talking about you right now in this room. If you're in Christ, this is a prophecy about what God was going to do with us. My servants will eat, but you'll be hungry. My servants will drink, but you'll be thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you'll be put to shame. My servants will shout for joy from a glad heart, but you will cry out from an anguished heart and you will lament out of a broken spirit. You will leave your name behind as a curse for my chosen ones and the Lord God will kill you, but he will give his servants another name. Now, quickly, go to Matthew. Matthew, quickly, 21. And this is awesome. I told you I wanted you to get a sense of not just the timing, but the atmosphere. What was it going to happen around the time of the events of the Messiah and his kingdom. Are you ready? What are you getting? And I need you, this is where we're going to finish right now. You're going to sense it right now. Get this. The timing we know, fourth kingdom, before that temple's destroyed, all this is going to be done. Okay, we got that timing. But what's, what's, what, what's around it? Elijah is going to come, call people to repentance. Judgment was coming. Judgment was coming. What else is going to happen? Well, God says that he was going to judge the covenant breakers and give they're the, the name to another people that they were going to be hungry spiritually, but his people would be not hungry that they're going to be thirsty, but not my people. And he says, he'll destroy these people and give the name to another. Now enter Jesus quick. Ready? Who came before Jesus? And what was he telling people was coming? Acts is laid where at the root of the trees. And now here comes Jesus, the Messiah. And I just love the parable because it's so fitting with everything God said was going to happen. Matthew 21, 33, listen to the parable. Listen to a par- another parable. There was a man, a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers and went away. When the grape harvest drew near, he sent his slaves to the farmers to collect his fruit. But the farmers took his slaves, beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first group, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them. They'll respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, listen to the question Jesus asks. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? There's their response. He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him, and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his produce at the harvest. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about, this came from the Lord and it is wonderful in our eyes. Now are you ready? Here it is. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing its fruit. Guys, what was the atmosphere expected? That judgment was going to come on the covenant breakers, and that God was going to give this kingdom 
to another people, producing the fruit of it. And enter Jesus, John the Baptist coming, promising judgment, calling them to repent. Here comes the Messiah, telling them the kingdom is already at hand. It's here. Jesus is that Messiah. He's brought the kingdom. And what is he saying now to the Jews? Judgment's coming, guys. Judgment's coming. Here's a story. He says, I'll send my son. And then they killed him. What do you think that that person should do to those people? Well, he's going to destroy them. He's going to give that to somebody else. And Jesus says, and that's right. The kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you and given to others. Which is precisely the atmosphere that you would expect to happen given everything God said already was going to take place before this Messiah came. Man, I got more. But we're done. Except, I I have to give you now the so what. So what? So what? This could be just exciting stuff. Like, wow, that's unbelievable. Jeff, that just told me that Jesus is Messiah, that he did bring his kingdom, that he came on time, that he did what was expected, that all this has happened. So what? So what is this? He's king. So what is this? He's Lord of all. So what is this? He's reigning. So what is this? That stone is going to become a mountain that fills the entire earth. So what is this? This has implications. That God says to you, you will never thirst. What did God say in Isaiah? He's going to take, you're going to be hungry. They're not. You're going to be thirsty. They're not. You're the they're not. Jesus comes to the woman at the well. She's like, he, she, he says to her, give me a drink. Right? By the way, he says, woman, give me a drink. He wasn't like, woman? That's just how they spoke then. So don't let it trip you out when you see it. He says, give me a drink. And then he says to her, if you would have known who's speaking to you, you would have asked me for water. I would have given it to you. You'd never be thirsty again. She's like, give me this water. I want some of that. And if you're a believer, you got it. Everything God said was going to happen has happened. And now, what are you expecting? That God's kingdom would fill the whole world. It's not just about heaven one day. Yes, it's about heaven. When you die, you are going to spend eternity with this living God. But eternal life does not begin when you die. It begins the very moment God opens your eyes to see Him and His kingdom, and your heart is changed, and you turn in repentance and faith to trust in this Messiah. Jesus and his kingdom has implications beyond just heaven one day. It has implications for the world right now that life, eternal life begins for everyone that God calls to himself that believes in him today. It changes everything. There's more to discuss on this that is really exciting and change everything. But let me just say that this has to have implications for right now. That God's kingdom is going to fill the whole world. It's going to change everything. Everything. We should be asking the question constantly. How's God going to use me for his kingdom? In what way is God going to use me as part of his story to be exalted in all the earth? How's he going to use my kids? How's he going to use my job, my business, my ministry? How's he going to use me? Because you know what? He is going to have victory over everything. What do the Psalms say? He shall have dominion. From sea to sea, from the rivers to the ends of the earth. He's going to have, Abraham's going to have descendants as numerous as the stars or the sand of the sea. You know what that means? Kids, it means that you have a glorious future to look forward to. No matter what the suffering and trials and everything else, and even if you're a martyr for your faith, 
the, the future you have to look forward to is a future of a legacy for the gospel. Everything you do matters as a believer. You leave behind a legacy for the glory of God. Christians, you should be looking at the world through kingdom eyes. That God has redeemed me. He's ransomed me. He's brought me out of darkness into the kingdom of his own dear son. And now when I look at the world, I look at every aspect of it, and I think he's going to have dominion over that. He's going to have dominion over that. He's going to take dominion over that. How's he going to use me for it? Yes, Christians, we should be looking at issues like adoption, and we shouldn't be just saying, oh, that's a terrible thing. Over 10,000 kids in Arizona and the orphanages right now picked up at midnight, taken into people's offices because they have no space for them in the orphanages anymore. You know what's happening right now? We shouldn't be saying, oh, great, maybe Jesus will return and take us off this rock. We should be collectively coming together saying, how is the kingdom of God going to capture these kids and lead them to Jesus? How come we're not taking care of these kids? How come there's still abortion clinics? Here's why. Because the kingdom of God right now, in this little moment of our history, is mostly we're indifferent. And we have these pipe dreams of just since it is heaven one day with no thought as to what was Jesus' view to earth's history before he came back for the final resurrection. Now we cannot, as believers, change history. I'm not saying that as Christians that we're the ones that change everything. I'm saying that it's our duty to be obedient to this king. And if he says, this is what you are to be focused on, you seek my kingdom, my righteousness. It's a matter of obedience as Christians. It's just a matter of obedience. And also, you know what? It's nothing but straight up, cold, hard, awesome hope. Hope. And I'm not talking about hope that's like, maybe things are going to get better. I'm talking about hope that's guaranteed. I got the promises that say that Jesus is going to conquer the whole world with the gospel. Who's coming with me? That's the question. That's the real question. It's nothing but hope ahead of you. You and I need to look at the world through kingdom eyes, and we need to see every single Goliath, and we need to say, who is this uncircumcised Philistine coming against the armies of the living God? Who does he think he is? That's the kind of heartbeat. Why are we looking at giants in the land, freaking out like the Israelites were? We saw there were giants in the land. Giants in the land? I know the Messiah who conquered death. He's alive. And he's reigning now. And he saved you. And I said last week, we're going to end on this. We, we think in our minds, I don't know, Jeff, like the world looks bad today. Yeah. But it's getting better with the gospel. Everywhere the gospel goes, it begins to grow and bring fruit. Everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah, there's wickedness all around us. And a lot of it we're to blame for. Not in the sense of we're responsible for other people's sin, but we are responsible when we see something going on and we turn our heads and turn the other way and we don't be the kingdom of God in that issue. We're called to be salt and light. I just want to tell you how important it is as believers for us to submit to the biblical truth that Jesus is Messiah, that he reigns, he's king over all. He calls you to come to him as Lord, not just Savior, as Lord. And when he calls you into his kingdom, he calls you to come and die, and he calls you to live your life for the glory of the king. And he calls you to, as a believer, to leave a legacy for the kingdom. 
And so here's my call. Here's my question to you right now. Every single one of you individually, as people go in the room, I got to ask you, number one, have you turned from sin to him to trust in him as Savior and Lord? Yes or no? And if you have, then I'm going to ask you the second question that I'm pressing on you all year long. And that's this. How is, going to, how is God going to use you in your life in a significant way for his kingdom? It's just a matter of obedience and us stepping into obedience to him saying, God, here I am. Here I am. That was, by the way, the answer of the prophets. Abraham, Abraham. Abraham's like, here I am, God. What? What? Go, go take your son to this place and kill him. He gets up early in the morning. Instant obedience. So how's God going to use you? How's he going to use you? We get to live our lives just for the American dream of two kids, a dog, a nice house and a car? Are you going to live your life in such a way that people look back at your life and they remember how glorious Jesus is because of what he did in your life? What kind of legacy are you going to leave for the gospel as a Christian? What legacy will you leave? How is God going to use you? That's the call. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and love. Thank you for this message. I pray you use it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.